Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, September 26, 2021. It focuses on the events which take place during Jesus' journey toward death. The message to all who will listen is God's grace can extend to even the worst of sinners, and he can give courage to fearful people-pleasers. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you that you are here and that you want to speak to us. I pray that you would accomplish everything that you desire in each person's heart, and I pray that your word would be alive and active and able to correct and train and rebuke and whatever else needs to take place today. I pray that you would be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So my first years of pastoral ministry were spent in a small church in a smaller town than you can probably imagine. If you counted everybody from the county line to the mile north, which is a little outside of town, you might have found 80 people. Maybe. While we were living there, we sometimes went to events in the two slightly larger towns. Randolph Southern Schools were seven miles away in Lynn, Indiana, a town of about 1,100 people. Northeastern Wayne County's facilities were about eight miles away in the opposite direction, just a few miles south of Fountain City, population 750-ish. Both districts were consolidations of several smaller schools, which were independent in the era when there was one room and that could cover every grade. Anyway, while we were situated nearby, northeastern Wayne County's high school's football team was years into the nation's longest high school football losing streak. It had been decades since the team had won a single game. To rub salt in the wound, the school's marching band was one of the top bands in the state, and so halftime show was better than the game. <laughs> now, we did not have kids at the time, but we had several in our youth group who went to the different schools, and so occasionally we would go to a football game to watch the band. And so it came to pass that we happened to be in the stadium on the night that the unthinkable happened. Northeastern Wayne County won a game. Mayhem ensued throughout the stadium. It was pretty exciting to watch, and uh, we got to be a part of that. Well, we've been walking with Jesus for a couple of weeks now as he heads down, down, down toward what appears to be defeat, toward his execution, his death, the tomb. In the early going, there were a few bright spots along the way. We talked about the woman who anointed him with perfume. We talked about Jesus speaking of his resurrection. He hinted that there was a new covenant that was coming, a covenant which would mean real righteousness for those who would believe in him. Well, if you take those events away, you have a darkening progression of difficulty upon difficulty. We have a friend who agrees to betray and then leads a mob to arrest Jesus. Another friend denies knowing him three times, just as Jesus had predicted. The main trio of disciples take a snooze instead of staying awake when he's in agony in the garden. And finally, Jesus is tried in the dead of night illegally and condemned to die. If you're there, 
if you're one of the 12 or a casual observer even, you don't see any hope for this guy. Perhaps you think another failed Messiah. I'd hoped this was the guy. Well, we're ready to take on Matthew chapter 27 today. And I'm telling you, there's not going to be a lot of good news here. Not a verse which is going to offer hope unless you know what's coming afterwards. It's not until chapter 28 that that twist that leads to joy happens. And we're going to see all this bad stuff today. We're still in the middle of this long losing streak. The first loss comes in the opening paragraphs. Let's read a bit of Matthew chapter 27. Just a reminder, while you're flipping pages or finding it on your phone, Peter's awful string of denials is the last thing that we talked about. What we're reading here comes on the heels of that. So we're ready for Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 5, if you'd like to read along with me. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. What are you supposed to do with this passage? Some look at it and nod their heads. Yep, that's what happens with those who reject God. They meet an untimely and horrible end. Others see what Judas does and are filled with compassion, grieving that he takes his life. This week I responded by asking this simple question. What would this man's future have looked like had he not ended his life at the end of a top rope? What could have been? Now, we can't know for sure. We know that it says that the devil came upon him and he was doing these things by that prompting. But let's assume that there was a possibility that he could have repented. It's likely, based on what we know of Jesus' post-resurrection conversation with Peter, that Judas would have been forgiven. Jesus would have likely embraced his betrayer. Judas likely would have been with the Twelve on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And he probably would have declared God's praises in tongues to the people in Jerusalem along with Peter and John and James and the rest. And he surely would have remembered his awful deeds and God's great grace and been ecstatically joyful. He would have been able to preach the good news in a way that nobody else could have. None of this happened, of course, because in despair over what seems from the text to be a completely unexpected outcome in Judas' mind, the man commits suicide. No more chance for repenting, no more opportunity to experience unexpected and amazing grace, no more hope for usefulness in Jesus' kingdom. Now, I'm confident of the truth of the following statement as I say it. Judas's self-killing was not what Jesus wanted. I'll go even farther down this road and state that Jesus does not want suicide for any man or woman or child. He wants to redeem what's broken and messed up, and he cannot do that if a person opts to end their own life. I know it's a hard topic to deal with. We all know folks, neighbors, family members, friends who've taken their own lives. Suicide has impacted this church. Some of you still grieve for a young life ended too soon. Was Judas saved? Can anyone who takes their own life be redeemed? 
I cannot judge anyone's eternal destination. Their soul is in God's hand. He is perfect and righteous judge, and he will do what is right. Trust him and live for him every day, offering his love to those who are despairing so that they can see the light at the end of a very dark tunnel and choose life. Before we leave this topic for another, please, if you're thinking of ending your own life, reach out to somebody. Don't go down that path. Call a friend, ask for help. God can help and he can change your life by the power of his spirit and make you into a new creature. Able to do good in the world and bring hope to others who are in despair. Amen? All right, let's read the next few verses. Matthew records for us in verses 6 to 10 what the religious leaders did with the money that Jesus threw down on the temple floor when he learned that Jesus was to be put to death. Here's what it says. Starting verse 6, the chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Even the actions of his enemies confirm his identity as the long-expected savior. They buy a field from a potter and fulfill a prophetic utterance from decades upon decades earlier. Look at the prophet's words in verses 9 to 10. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Crazy, isn't it? The earnest money, the blood money that was given to Judas when he promised to give Jesus' enemies a heads up on his whereabouts was exactly 30 pieces of silver. The field purchased with the returned blood money belonged to a potter just as predicted by Zechariah. No, Zechariah. Matthew said it was Jeremiah who said all these 30 pieces of silver stuff, but in the book we call Jeremiah, you don't find these words, which Matthew says are from him. Instead, in Zechariah 11, 12 to 13, you have this. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. In Jeremiah, we have nothing of the silver coins. But we have him buying a pot from a potter and later buying a field from some other guy for about 17 pieces of silver. Neither of these prophets say exactly what Matthew says that they say. Why? You want to know, don't you? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. There are plenty of guesses. If we go beyond a short answer, though, we're going to get into all sorts of dilemmas. I'm not going to fill you in on every other option. I just want to share with you the most likely of them. And this brief explanation is given on a site that I've come to rely on called gotquestions.com. You've got questions. The Bible has answered. We help you find them. That's their slogan. Anyway. Here's what it says. The most likely answer is found in the structure of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible is divided into three sections called the Law, Writings, and Prophets. Jesus refers to these divisions in Luke 24, 44. The collection of the prophets began with the book of Jeremiah. The scrolls were sometimes referred to by the name of the first book, which in this case 
would be Jeremiah. So when Matthew says that Jeremiah says, he means that the prophecy was found in the Jeremiah scroll. Satisfies me. Satisfies you, I hope. I mention this issue only because sometimes these kind of inconsistencies come up as people are trying to disprove the Bible or say it's not worth paying any attention to. I'm telling you that it's worth paying attention to, that the book that you have is reliable. The supposed inconsistencies are not enough cause to throw it out. They are mostly the equivalent of a typo, a possible miscopying the letter, or a misunderstanding on our part. Yes, there are larger errors here and there, but there are convincing explanations just like there was with this one in many, many cases. Bless God and keep believing the truths that you have in the pages of this good book because it is good and it contains the words of life. All right, we've got a bunch more to cover. So let's go ahead and read verses 11 through 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, do you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of the self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Not a bit of defensiveness from Jesus. In fact, the only words that he speaks while in Pilate's courtroom are this vague, maybe kind of acknowledgement that he's the king. John has a few more words than this, but they're no more self-protective than these are. Mark and Luke report exactly the same phrase that Matthew does. Why doesn't Jesus speak up when accused? He knows that the charges against him are false. If I was in his place, I'd have been pulling out all the stops, making sure that they knew that I was innocent, claiming that they were making stuff up, you and I, we would be sweating and crying and trying to make things stop, right? We all had this, this bent toward maintaining our reputation before others. When someone points fingers at us, we are ready to fight tooth and nail to prove them wrong. Sometimes we attack them in return. We do it even when we're wrong. Haven't you defended your actions even when your actions have been indefensible? Jesus could have told the governor the truth. The man had surely seen enough to know what was going on. He'd have believed Jesus, wouldn't he? 
But Jesus doesn't shut down the liars. He doesn't speak up. He lets the accusations fly and zips his lips. It's like he's resigned himself to die. And he has, hasn't he? Remember the repeated prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? We read the account of his urgent pleas last week. He prayed and prayed and prayed. He prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That was verse 39. A couple of verses later in verse 42, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. After three times going over things with the father, Jesus returns to his snoozing friends ready to face whatever comes. He knows that death is around the corner and he willingly walks toward it. He does so not because he's fond of pain, but because he's fond of us. He wants our salvation badly enough to submit to the will of his Father. The words of Hebrews 12, 2 come to mind again. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We aren't seeing Jesus' joy here, but it's there deep within him as he faces certain execution. There's no need to defend himself. The Father has shown him the way, and there will be no freedom from sin for those who believe if he does not die, so he willingly goes there. He's free of guilt, but he must die. Pilate recognizes his innocence. Even without his wife's weird dream message, the man knows that Jesus has done no wrong, that he's been dragged into court out of jealousy and out of self-interest. His accusers want Jesus out of the way so that they can return to their cushy, we're in charge state, in the, into that state that they were in before he started knocking over tables and speaking truth to everyone. Pilate looks for a way to set Jesus free without sending the crowd into riot mode. He hasn't released their fan favorite of the year. And so he's got this notorious criminal, an actually guilty man who had murdered people and, and done all sorts of stuff in the middle of this insurrection. And so he decides to offer this guy who's guilty or Jesus and let the crowd decide. He figures they're going to go with Jesus and let him go. But he's wrong. Murderer or innocent man, they want blood, and they choose to set the guilty man free. They demand Jesus' crucifixion. Over and over they shout, crucify him. Crucify him. Louder and louder they insist, crucify him. How does Pilate respond? Not with a great deal of courage. He throws up his hands and gives in. Sure, he tells them that he's innocent of Jesus' blood, and he puts responsibility on them, and they say, yeah, it's on us and on our kids and all that kind of stuff. But it's his call to make, and he says, I'd rather protect myself and my position. Thumbs down. The guy who's released might cause a riot is going to die even if he's not remotely close to a smidgen of a little bit guilty. Peace at all costs. One life is worth the tranquility which will result. Again, you and I would like to throw Pilate under the bus or the chariot, I guess. We'd like to claim moral superiority. We would have stood up to the stupid crown and done what was right. We'd have released Jesus and taken on those unruly folks. Really? I don't know about you, but I've done dumb things in the name of keeping peace. 
I've let fear lead me into sinning against God and against others. I've bent to pressure more than once, more than twice, more than three times, if I'm honest. Without God's help, I am a hopeless people pleaser. What about you? Are you more like Pilate in this moment than you let on? He knew the right thing to do. He did the wrong because it was expedient, because it was popular, because it was safer. Have others, friends, family members, co-workers, whomever, suffered because you chose the easier route, the route that kept you in the good graces of those that you feared but harmed those that you love? God help us. You know what? We cannot do what's right without God's help. We cannot make things right without God's help. We cannot live to please him without his help. Judas despaired when he learned of the fate Jesus would befall because of his actions. He did not cry out to God for mercy or seek forgiveness. He lost hope, saw no other way of escape, and ended his life. Don't follow his example. If you've done wrong, confess your sin to God. His grace is big enough to cover every dumb, harmful, stupid thing you've ever done or said. Forgiveness is given to all who confess. We read these words at the end of last week's message. I want you to hear them again today. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pilate chickened out. When the pressure was on, he knew the right thing to do. It was within his power to do it, and he caved. He handed Jesus over to be crucified because it pacified the crowd, not because it was the right thing to do. Don't follow his example. If you failed another out of fear, if you've done wrong because it would bring peace, repent of your sin. God is merciful, he will forgive, and he will give courage the next time you face terrifying circumstances. Do I dare read it again? Will you hear it better this time? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps as we close with the time of silence today, you need to confess your shortcomings. Do you need to take your betrayal of another to God so that you can find hope? Do you need to take your weak-willed, people-pleasing ways to him to ask for fearlessness? Whatever you need from God, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Trust God and ask for what you need most. Humbly confess your sin to him and find his mercy. Let's take just a few moments in silence. God, we need your mercy because we do the wrong thing. We get others in trouble because of our, our stubbornness, our foolishness, our people-pleasing ways, our fearfulness. God, help us to follow you. Help us to be obedient to you, and we ask for your mercy and grace because we need it. Help us to be courageous this week. Help us to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, everything that we have. Give us opportunities to be a blessing to others. 
to do what's right. Whatever comes. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did on the cross in saving us. We're going to celebrate that next week, remembering his death on the cross for us. God, help us to think of that throughout this week so that we don't lose heart, so that we don't do the wrong thing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Close with the words of Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, the same words that I've read each week as we've closed out our services as we've been walking with Jesus toward the tomb. Hear again why Jesus kept moving toward death. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.